The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 10th. Today, the search for a new White House chief of staff, the rise in right-wing political violence, and the entrenched bias of smart speakers. Once again, President Trump is about to need a new chief of staff, which might prove to be a difficult job to fill. That's partly because it looks like special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation is moving toward a big finale. So we piece everything together like tea leaves. And unfortunately, Robert Mueller has not given us his schedule, his timeline of what he plans to do and when. But the filings from last week indicate that things are progressing pretty rapidly and that Mueller is nearing the conclusion of his investigation. Phil Rucker is the Post's White House bureau chief. And he's been covering the aftermath of the bombshell court filings that were submitted late on Friday. In the documents, the Mueller team concluded that Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, engaged in, quote, multiple discernible lies. And federal prosecutors revealed that Trump himself directed Michael Cohen to pay porn star Stormy Daniels hush money not to reveal their affair. Trump went to Twitter right away after the filings came out and said that they totally clear the president. That could not be any further from the truth. They do not clear the president, as anybody reading the filings could determine. But it's the latest example of Trump trying to use his presidential megaphone, his Twitter handle, to spin this kind of alternate reality. So he's communicating to his supporters that it's much ado about nothing and that the filings totally clear him, when in fact one of the filings implicates him in a felony and the other filing indicates another Russian contact to his campaign. It strikes me that all of this is going down while Donald Trump is looking for his next chief of staff. He's lost his last one. John Kelly is out. And he is it seems like he's scrambling to find someone to replace him. So what does that mean for the state of the Trump administration right now? You know, it's totally chaotic. And a number of the officials that Trump is looking at for chief of staff don't actually want the job. So, Martine, if you're interested, you could line up. He'd probably take you. That's where we're at right now. Nick Ayers is currently Vice President Pence's chief of staff. He was teed up to replace John Kelly. Trump had already already settled on that before announcing on Saturday that Kelly would be leaving. And then fast forward to Sunday and Ayers is out. He says, I'm moving back to Georgia. He's going to work as a consultant to support the Trump campaign on the outside, but he's not going to be the chief of staff. So here we are Monday. There is no heir apparent to John Kelly right now. A number of the candidates are not that interested. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is being talked about, but he is signaling that he'd rather stay at the Treasury. Mick Mulvaney, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, is said to be a potential candidate, but he too is interested at staying at the OMB. Robert Lighthizer, he's the U.S. trade representative. In the middle of this whole trade war with China, he's a potential candidate, but he also has signaled he's not going to take this job. 
job. And so that leaves a fourth candidate, Congressman Mark Meadows. He's a conservative. He's a Trump ally, talks to the president a lot. He's also the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He is very much a contender for chief of staff. He could potentially get the job. And then there are other names in the mix as well, including Dave Bossy, who's the former Trump campaign deputy manager. Why is Trump having such a hard time filling this job? Like, why don't people want to do it? Well, there are a few reasons uh, he's having a difficult time. First of all, it's just such a toxic workplace, right? So you have the president and all of the chaos and the moods that we know about from the reporting. But you also have the infighting inside the building. And so if you're the chief of staff, you've got all these other powerful personalities who also work for Trump who are aiming at you, who are knifing you behind your back and sometimes in front of your back. That sounds lovely. It's not that lovely. (laughs) So you have all of that. And then you have the specter of the Russia investigation and the Democratic House investigations that are going to come in the new year. And so if you're going to come in as chief of staff, you have to be thinking about who is my personal attorney going to be? Who's going to defend me if I get subpoenaed? either by Robert Mueller or to go testify before a congressional inquiry in the Democratic House. I mean, there, there's a lot going on in terms of potential corruption in the administration. But as chief of staff, you might also be part of a moment where the president tries to obstruct justice and all of a sudden you're implicated and ensnared and potentially facing jail time or, or certainly thousands of dollars in legal fees. So it's a pretty daunting assignment for anybody. And also, it seems like that one of the incentives for doing these jobs in the past is that, you know, you go to the White House, you work for two or three or four years, and then once you're done and you're out of there, your career is basically made. Like, you can do whatever you want in the private sector. You can start your own initiatives or what have you. And I think one thing that we're seeing in the past couple of years is that for many people who leave the White House, they are having trouble finding their next steps. And they're, in some ways, political pariahs. That's exactly right. The past White House chiefs of staff for President Obama, for President Clinton, for George W. Bush have gone on to lead major companies, to be elected mayor of Chicago, as was the case with Rahm Emanuel, to be presidents of colleges and universities. Leon Panetta was Clinton's chief of staff and then went on to be the secretary of defense and the CIA director, had a very distinguished career. What we've seen now is that serving in the Trump White House is not helpful in building one's career and, in fact, can be damaging. People who leave the Trump White House have had a very difficult time trying to land big jobs at Fortune 500 companies. Some of them, like Reince Priebus, have been able to start consulting businesses or get clients or, you know, Sean Spicer wrote a book and Reince does some speeches around the country and makes money that way. But it's not the same as being in the mix to run a big company because a lot of the main brands in America don't want to be affiliated with Donald Trump because of how toxic and polarizing his presidency has been. To say nothing of the sort of management chops that you get in the Trump White House, That is not exactly a good thing for your resume if you're trying to run a big company. The fact that President Trump is at this moment where he doesn't have a chief of staff and he also has several other senior positions that are vacant right now, do you think that will affect his ability to adequately defend against whatever comes out of the Mueller investigation as well as the investigations that are about to be started up by Democrats in the House? There's a lot of concern among 
President Trump's allies in Congress, Republicans in Congress, that the White House is not prepared for the political hailstorm that's going to come. And it's not just the Mueller Russia investigation, but it's all the various inquiries that are going to be launched by Democrats in the House. It's the beginning of the 2020 campaign. You're going to have so many Democratic presidential candidates out there in the primaries starting really in January or February, taking shots at the White House. And what you have at the White House right now is a counsel's office has a lot of vacancies where lawyers should be working. You have the press and communications offices that also have vacancies. You have a chief of staff who's leaving with no replacement lined up. But you also have one, maybe two, maybe even more deputy chief of staff roles that are going to be vacated at the end of the year. There's no political director right now because the political director went to work for the Trump campaign. So it's just not the fully functioning war room that a lot of Republican allies think Trump needs at the White House. Now, if you talk to the White House officials, they say, look, Trump is Trump. He's going to manage this himself on his Twitter feed day to day. He's going to be reacting hourly to these developments and he'll be able to persevere. And he'll do that regardless of of who is chief of staff or whether he has one or not. Exactly. And you know what? They point to the 2016 campaign and say he did not have the traditional war room infrastructure there. It was really him and his phone at Trump Tower getting him out of a lot of holes, including that Access Hollywood video. But a criminal investigation is very serious. The congressional inquiries are very serious. There could potentially be impeachment proceedings that Democrats could launch. And this is not a White House that's prepared for that. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you. Today, a jury began deliberating the prison sentence for James Alex Fields, this self-proclaimed neo-Nazi who drove his car into a crowd of protesters in Charlottesville in August 2017. One woman was killed in that attack, and last week, Fields was found guilty of first-degree murder. That was just one of several instances of right-wing-motivated violence in the last two years. And there was this particularly bad period this fall. There was the Florida man who was mailing bombs all over the place to CNN and to Barack Obama and George Soros. Then there was a man in Kentucky who attempted to get into a historically black church and ultimately just shot some black people in a grocery store. And then there was the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, the Tree of Life, where 11 people were killed by a white supremacist. As all of this unfolded over one week in October, Wesley Lowry and several other reporters at The Post started thinking. It felt like they were seeing an increase in attacks from people citing right-wing motivations. But they wondered, was that actually the reality? That's when we began this set of reporting, trying to find a data set we could use, trying to find other examples. And seeing, you know, we talk a lot about Islamic terrorism and we hear from the president a lot about left-wing violence and Antifa. But what we want to get a sense of is how often is right-wing terrorism like this happening in America? And so what did you find? What we found was that in the 60s and 70s, you had a ton of left-wing violence. Those left-wing attacks really fell off. Then what we started to see is the rise in the most recent years of kind of right-wing attacks. You also have Islamic terrorism attacks as well that kind of factor in there. And so early 2000s, you're seeing just a handful, if any at all, right-wing terror attacks in a given year. I think 2002 has zero. And then as you get to 2010, 
safely within the election of Barack Obama, after the rise of a bunch of kind of militia groups and anti-government groups, you start seeing an uptick in these right-wing attacks and then begin surging in 2016 and 2017. His late 20s entered the uh, Comet Pizza with an assault rifle. These attacks that might have happened once or twice a year, or these incidents, are now happening dozens of times a year, right? At the same time, there's been almost no rise in, in left-wing domestic terrorism this way. And, and so what we're seeing is to the extent to which Americans are at risk of terror or experiencing terror, it is more likely if they're going to be involved in an incident like that, it's going to be at the hands of a right-wing terrorist. And hatred is what caused all of this. And why are we seeing this uptick in violence, particularly from right-wing groups or, or people with right-wing leanings? It's difficult to say, if not for this factor, this person would not have done this terrible thing. What we do know is that this is a moment in which the rhetoric coming from the president and from his administration speaks to the issues that mobilize these types of folks on the far right. If you are someone who is Islamophobic and inclined, type of person who's inclined to throw a pipe bomb through the window of a mosque to try to scare the Muslims out of the country, having a president talking about how we have to shut down all immigration from Muslim countries, that is not going to discourage you from throwing that pipe bomb, right? In the past, and for at least much of our modern history, no matter who the president of the United States has been, they've served as a role of actively discouraging and moderating some of these worse impulses, right? Well, clearly, of course, we don't think X, Y, and Z. Of course, not all Muslims are bad. Of course, not all immigrants are bad. I, I remember that very clearly from right after September 11th when President Bush you know, made sure to speak very directly about how he didn't want to see any sort of violence in response to this aimed at Muslims in America. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. This idea that he understood that the platform of the presidency comes with real power, that people are listening to you. Think about Pittsburgh, which was the incident that started this reporting for us. Here you had a man who was on these white supremacist message boards and social media sites railing about Jews and railing about how they were helping refugees come in. And you have a president who is saying many of those similar things. He's saying this is an invasion coming to our southern border. These people are going to storm our border. Well, if that were true, if there are actually an invasion at the southern border, you might try to do something to stop that. And that speaks to the danger of some of this political rhetoric, right? That when we allow this level of hyperbole and dehumanization of be it refugees or immigrants or Muslims or black people or Jewish people, it makes it easier for someone to take that next step. The suspect in the shooting is in custody. We have multiple casualties inside the synagogue. We have three officers who have been shot. Beyond that, there's a question about how we use our law enforcement resources at a local level and a federal level to combat different types of terrorism, right? There's a good argument to be made, I think, actually, that one of the reasons that in terms of raw number, the occurrences of Islamic terrorism, that it's so low in America in a given year is because we've devoted a massive amount of resource to preempt and combat that type of terrorism. Dating back to the Obama administration, there has been a failure, according to former officials and, and current officials even, to properly assess the threat of kind of homegrown right-wing terror. And so if you're not attempting to stop something, it's unsurprising when it keeps happening. 
What do you mean by a failure to assess that risk, that they haven't been doing enough? Yes. Well, there, and there's a few things. So after 2001, after 9-11, there is understandably massive governmental focus on combating Islamic terrorism. And then what we see is as civil rights and anti-extremist groups begin sounding an alarm about a rise in these militia groups and anti-government groups and far-right groups and anti-Semitic groups, there still was not, many would argue, an adequate response from the Obama administration, much less the rest of the government and, and law enforcement, to shift resources and priority to combating these types of groups. Now, there are some logistical difficulties with this, right? Domestic terrorism, as we understand it, isn't a federal crime. What, what do you mean it's not a federal crime? So we think about it this way, right? Terrorism, as we understand it and as we think about it, is about using some type of an act of violence for a political means to send a message. And, and within our legal system, the statutes that exist for prosecuting terrorism are about someone working in concert with an international terrorism group. If the federal government finds someone who's been watching ISIS videos in their basement, right, and is beginning to radicalize, the fact that they suspect that that person is gaining sympathies with this group that has been labeled a terrorist organization by our government internationally gives them a probable cause to begin investigating that person, begin pursuing charges for them. Now think about the corollary with a homegrown right-wing terrorist, the type of person who might try to bomb a mosque or shoot up a black church, right? You can imagine a world in which three or four white guys hang out every week and shoot guns at photos of Barack Obama and say a bunch of racist things with each other. At what point do they stop being Americans exercising the rights that they have to speech and guns and whatever it is? And at which point do they become a prosecutable terrorism organization, right? And so there still is some mess within our federal bureaucracy about how exactly we deal with terrorism what that means, what that looks like, especially as it relates to, again, a potential homegrown terrorist, someone who is from here, who isn't radicalized by al-Qaeda or ISIS, but rather is radicalized by Stormfront and, you know, and Breitbart. And so these are, these are hard things to measure. But also particularly hard to measure when so much of it is kind of politically tinged, right? Of course. Well, and then beyond that, what exactly is a terror attack, which is one of the things we were looking at, right? And so... Some instances that people might consider left-wing violence, some of these Antifa marches where they, you know, smash a stop sign and punch someone, right? Well, are those terror attacks? And those discrepancies in the definitions very often allow people to dismiss findings they don't like. Well, your terror database doesn't have all these Antifa things in it, so therefore it must be biased. We certainly see in our public discourse people along partisan lines whole-scale dismissing things. It's very hard to get most Republican strategists or commentators or talking heads or Twitter personalities to acknowledge that there's been a real uptick in right-wing violence since the election of Barack Obama and then additionally since the election of Donald Trump. There's a desire very often to make an argument that everyone is complicit in this at the same extent, right? Everyone, there's, there's violence on both sides, right? It's the Charlottesville argument, right? That this is really everything and everyone, right? And it is true that there are violent actors across the political spectrum and off of the political spectrum. But the data that we have shows that certainly since the election of the first black president, to the extent to which there's political violence in the United States of America, more of it exists on our political right than on our political left. Wesley Lowry covers policing for The Washington Post.
before we sign off, one more thing. Sorry, I don't know that. If you're thinking about gifts for the holidays, you might be considering buying a smart speaker, like the Amazon Alexa or Google Home or Apple HomePod. Nearly 100 million of these things have been sold so far. And they might be a fine gift idea if you sound like me. If you're a native English speaker, if you have a generalized non-regional American accent. But they're not great if you speak like practically anyone else. Okay, Google, tell me what the square root of 777 is. I can only set reminders for times in the future. When do you want to be reminded? Never mind. Voice assistants have a hard time with accents, especially if the people speaking use English as a second language. Drew Harwell covers technology for The Post, and he says that smart speakers are primarily programmed to understand a very specific style of speaking. There's this baseline that the Alexa and Google assistants understand more. They understand more male, white, college-educated, Western-born American accents. Smart speakers misunderstand people with Chinese, Indian, and Spanish accents about one in five times. And Drew says that's because the developers behind these devices are biased toward voices like their own. And that does have consequences in how the programs are created and the solutions that they offer to people who are having issues with these speakers. This means that non-native English speakers or people of color who use dialects they have a hard time getting their message across. And that confusion can be embarrassing or even isolating. To have this thing that you paid money for tell you that your English isn't good enough to understand. And if tech companies don't make changes, it also means that this whole swath of consumers could be left behind on even smarter products down the line. This is a a smart speaker issue, but it's also a broader tech issue. It's whose problems are being solved, whose problems are even being recognized as problems. You know, I I think that's always the question we should be asking with tech because it's an incredibly powerful force in our culture, in our society, and it affects our lives in a very real way. Drew Harwell covers technology and artificial intelligence for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review or tweet with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.